Welcome to Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. This is Sound Prince for the week of February 26, 2017. On February 21, ACB issued the following press release. The American Council of the Blind, ACB, is proud to announce the winners of the 2017 Beatty Awards, the benefits of audio description in education, a listening is learning initiative of the Council's Audio Description Project, ADP, and the Described and Captioned Media Program, DCMP. The winners of this year's honors, all young people who are blind, are Grand Prize winner, Abby Moreno, Lowell High School, San Francisco, California. In the senior category, ages 16 to 21, first place was Breck Morrissey, Flower Mound High School, Highland Village, Texas. Second place was Kaduja Person from Nansimund River High School, Suffolk, Virginia. Junior category, ages 11 to 15, first place was Abby Marino, Lowell High School, San Francisco, California. Second place, Shelby DeHai, South Dakota School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Miller, South Dakota. Third place, John Holstein, West Virginia School for the Blind, Romney, West Virginia. Sophomore category, ages 7 to 10. First place, Audrey Mattingly from the West Virginia School for the Blind. Second place, Fernando Morin Padilla from Santa Rita, Elementary, Salina, California. Third place was Townsend Stimple from the West Virginia School for the Blind. The premise of the Beatty program is simple. Kids love movies. If a young person can't see or can't see well, audio description provides access to all the visual images of the movies that their sighted peers enjoy. Description benefits children who are blind and those who have learning disabilities, and it has been shown to boost literacy for all children. The Beatty program asked young people who are blind or who have low vision to submit short reviews of any described movie. Audio description uses words that are succinct, vivid, and imaginative to convey the visual image from television, film, DVDs, theater, museums, and other settings stated Kim Charlson, president of the American Council of the Blind. The young people honored with these awards not only appreciate the ability to enjoy films and television right along with their peers, description helps them and their sighted friends develop language skills through exposure to varied word choice, synonyms, metaphors, and similes. I love audio description and wish I'd had access to it when I was growing up. At the end of July 2016, Debbie Phillips was relieved of her duties as principal of the Kentucky School for the Blind. Tristan Parsons was named interim principal. There has been much speculation as to when the Kentucky Department of Education would name a permanent principal for the school. Steps were taken toward that goal in the last two weeks. I was pleased to participate on the interview committee considering candidates for the principal position. The committee suggestions have now been forwarded to Dr. Stephen Pruitt, 
Commissioner of Education in Kentucky, and we await his decision. We'll bring you more news on this subject as it becomes available. When people lose their vision, they often feel they can't participate in the hobbies they love. From time to time here on Soundprints, our guests have shared their hobbies. We have a hobby page this week, page two, which features Christina Palmer, a Soundprints listener from Olive Hill near Moorhead, Kentucky. Christina has lost most of her vision due to retinitis pigmentosa, but she hasn't lost her love of gardening. Since the elections last November, there has been much speculation and doom and gloom that people with disabilities can't expect much that is positive related to accessibility in the next several years. This week, the United States Supreme Court issued a rare unanimous decision concerning the right of a student to have a service dog or guide dog at school. Mark Reichert, Policy Director at the American Foundation for the Blind, explains the possible ramifications of this very positive decision for children with disabilities in grades K-12. through He also updates us on the Alice Cogswell and Sullivan Macy Act, which was first introduced in the last Congress and which is being championed once again by AFB and others. Check it out on page 3. Page 4 is our resource page this week. Find out about some new books from the National Braille Press, about iPhones, iPads, Mac and Windows computers. There's a book about accessible games for the iPhone, another about phone apps that help you navigate around town, and yet another about Siri and Alexa and other talking technology. And on page 5 is the Soundprints calendar. Page 3. Christina Palmer has been a listener of Soundprints for quite some time. And last fall, she came down to the rehab center uh, to um, just kind of do the McDowell Center thing. Uh, she's from the Olive Hill area up in eastern Kentucky near Moorhead. And um, that's where I met Christine. Christina was at the McDowell Center during their open house. And... Um, as 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 it sometimes goes, I recognize people from the names on the mailing list, and I'd talked to Christina a couple times when she first called, and but you know it was, it was really neat to get to know her, and in the process, I discovered that her hobby is gardening. So we're going to welcome Christina to Soundprints today to tell us about that hobby and how she, as a person uh, who is low vision, who's losing more and more vision all the time, how she continues to do to handle her hobby. So, Christina, welcome to Soundprints. We're real glad you're here. Well, thank you, Carla. Christina, tell us when you started gardening, what you what you like to, to raise. Just just give us a little look at your um, at your hobby. Okay. Well I started back when I was uh teenager I could still see quite a quite a bit and um just um my my grandma she she uh taught me a lot about it and it was a hobby that I done with her and and then and I started liking it a lot and I started raising um after she passed away she wanted me to take care of her so I did mm-hmm. and I grew to love it and my favorite flower the the grow is irises, mm-hmm. and um, 
now I do it all by feel and leaf. Mm-hmm. Um, every plant has its different uh, shape and leaf and texture and veins. Mm-hmm. And um, I have markers on a lot of stuff um, around the, the gardens. I have many gardens. Okay. I also grow vegetables, too. What kind of vegetables do you grow? Uh, tomatoes and peppers and sometimes green beans. Mm-hmm. And do you have, how, how, do, how do you, um, when they're just coming up, and those kinds of things. Do you have, do you have help to, you know, keep the weeds out, all that kind of stuff, or can you pretty much do all that on your own? I do pretty much all on my own. My mom will look at it like if there's something that I can't tell, and mm-hmm. and, um, and she'll tell me that's a weed or something mm-hmm. when she's out about them. Mm-hmm. But I pretty much do quite a bit of it my own. So. I guess this time of year, um, you'll just be kind of getting ready to get things in for the spring, or do you yeah. already do you start things inside and then plant them? Or uh, I know, well, you know, that everything time. is a little different. So, well, some you can start inside. I got most mainly in the stuff outside, mm-hmm. but I do have house plants too. Outside. Oh. What's your favorite house plant? Um, aloe plant, aloe vera. Mhm. And do you grow those just for fun, or do you do, you know, do you take what do you do with uh you, with the uh, aloe vera? I mean, you can do a lot of stuff with it. I think. Yeah, you can. I just, I just like them. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'd, you can put it on your skin. It's very good. Like mm-hmm. if your skin gets dry mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or hurt or burned, mainly for burns, mm-hmm. I keep it around. Okay. All right. And so um, so coming up in the spring, I guess you'll, do you start your tomatoes inside and then put them out? or? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. start them inside and put them out mm-hmm. when it gets warm enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. And... How about some of the other things? Um, well, most of stuff is most of my stuff's outside. Okay. Because uh, I've been away to the school. Mm-hmm. Not really had time to do like I usually do. Okay. So this year, are you going to be are you going to be back at the McDowell Center some more, or will you? Um, mm. No, I'm going to be at home. So you'll be home. So you'll get to have a normal year with your garden, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually redoing my one. It's called, they call it the Seeker Garden. Okay. It's in between two, in between two buildings. Oh. I'm redoing that right now at the moment. So so what's involved in, in, in redoing the garden? Are you, you know, replacing everything in it or... Um, I'm, I'm not a gardener, so so. I'm gonna take everything, all the plants that's in there, take it up, and I want to have um, help killing it, killing the dirt up, and then replanting what looks good back in. And, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, taking the extra somewhere else. Okay. All right. Do you just have the one garden, or do you have more spaces that you know more gardens? I have. I have. Let's see. 
acres. I'd be weeding all the time. <laughs> oh, I am. Oh, <laughs> well, so what are the best times? You, you, now, the irises, do you, you don't have to dig them up, or do you, every year? Because they no, have those, don't. yeah, they have those little root things that. Tubers are called. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, and yeah, so. You don't have to dig them up. They're perennials. The annuals, you, you can't leave out. Right. Or like, uh, say, the glads and the cannon bulbs. You have to dig them up. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so can you use, if they're an annual, now you have to replace them every year. Right. Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 And and you clean all that out so next year we're ready to start fresh. Yeah. If you have a lot of of garden space, how much time do you spend doing that? Do you do that every day or? Every day. Oh my goodness. But it's warm. Mm. Well. And not rain. Or no snow. Well, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't want it out there in the snow that wouldn't be so good that freeze everything out anyway but yeah. i guess things like irises they're they they're they can they, i think the iris would be my kind of plant because you wouldn't have to yeah, dig it up very, every year they're very hardy too yeah yeah i i don't have a green thumb christina i need something that is that is definitely a survivor <laughs> because for that one thing it has nice. to survive me <laughs> <laughs> used to have irises and she always had blue ones but um then i was reading in i think a better homes and gardens one time that they come in different colors do you just have blue ones or do do you have different color irises oh i have let me see i got a lot of purple and mm-hmm. blue and then i have some other different colored ones do they all have that same? I think the irises have such great, great fragrance. Do do the different colors? Do they all, you know, have a similar fragrance? Or, you know, if you've got a yellow iris, does it have a slightly different smell? Um, I don't think they smell. Okay. Yeah. Well. <laughs> But I might be different. Yeah, yeah. Well, the ones, well, I, I remember I really enjoyed them because they did have kind of a, kind of a fragrance, not a strong fragrance like a rose, you know, yeah. but, um, but they did have a, have a fragrance. I'll tell you one flower that my mother grew that I did not like was a petunia. Oh, 
I didn't yeah. like the texture of them, nor did I like the, <laughs> I just felt like they never had a good no. flower smell, you know? No, they don't. No, so I wasn't a petunia don't either. No, they don't. But do you grow um, the marigolds? Do you grow them around your vegetables? You can. They said that um, they keep, we've learned they keep bugs and stuff away. It's pretty good. Yeah. Do you find that to be true? I'd heard that. But... Yeah, it is true. Um, they, they even say that the, they keep the rabbits and stuff away, but I, that didn't work. <laughs> You notice that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we we often have people that um, have hobbies, and when they begin losing their vision, um, they find that they'll say, oh, I can't do my hobby anymore. And so it's always really neat to find people who have continued to, um, you know, to, 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 um, do whatever hobby they have and and especially something you know like gardening because I think a lot of blind and visually impaired people think that they can't garden it seems to me it's either you either absolutely are convinced you can or you know that there's a lot of people out there who don't who who really don't feel they can you just got to find a different way of doing things mm-hmm yeah, yeah. So I guess that, of course, you can tell. I mean, obviously, you can tell when things need to be, you know, watered and that kind of thing. Do you, do you need to um, have have help, you know, like for checking for the, you know, for the insects and if there's a, you know, some kind of leaf disease or something in a plant. I'm assuming um, that usually can feel from the leaf. Oh. Usually the leaf will have holes or something in it if the mm -hmm. bugs are eating it. Okay. And somebody has to tell, like, if it's yellow or something. Mm-hmm. But um, far as the bugs, I can feel holes in them. Yeah, sure. So you just yeah. kind of learned as you lost your vision, um, and and what what vision? From experience. Yes. Yeah. So so your eye your eye problem is. Retinitis pigmentosis. Okay, and so that's gradual. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a lot of people out there with that, and um, and and so just as your vision got less and less, then I guess you just adapted as you went along, right? Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. and it's a good therapy for you too. Well, it would keep, be, and keeps you moving, active. That a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. With what we have. Yeah, Christina, do you grow um, do you grow like uh, herbs and things in the in the you know in the pots in the windows inside? That's one thing I've never tried. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've I've not done that myself, but I I've you know talked to some people who have, and um, mm -hmm. so I was just curious about that, but um. I, uh, I I find it it's really fascinating. Many years ago, I homeschooled my granddaughter, and one year we decided she wanted a garden. And that's kind of like asking the person who's a total disaster at something to <laughs> suddenly become an expert. And um, but we did create a little garden, and yeah. she had a few carrots and. 
um, her pepper, she got peppers and she got tomatoes. But you know what? This is going to sound really stupid. I didn't know why her carrots were so thin. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know nothing about carrots. Oh, well, carrots are a biennial plant. That means it takes them two years to develop. Oh, but okay. I didn't know that. So I figured by the fall, those carrots ought to be ready to come up, right? <laughs> well, those were the skinniest, scrawniest carrots you ever saw. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> but but it, was, it was a nice warm year, and we had tomatoes until, um, gosh, that year it was real warm, even up around Thanksgiving. And so we picked, somebody told me if we picked the tomatoes, um, and wrapped them in newspaper that they would stay, that they would ripen up, you know, if right before it was going to freeze. And we had fresh tomatoes that had just ripened at Christmas time that year. So it was kind of fun. I felt real successful. The problem was, <laughs> <laughs> the problem was the next year we repeat, tried to repeat the process and the squirrels got the tomatoes. So that, that discouraged everything. <laughs> Yeah. They had a bite of everything. It was really not good. So, so uh, it's not good. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you you telling us about about the uh, all of your your gardening and things. Um, that that is just really fascinating. And maybe you know if you find some new flowers or uh, you know can uh, maybe have you know, come up with some new tips, new ways to do things, let us know. We'd love to have you come come back and tell us about them. Okay. Thank you, Carla. Find books and more in accessible media with APH's free of charge Louis database. HTTP colon slash slash L-O-U-I-S dot A-P-H dot org. Locate accessible educational materials from nearly 200 different agencies. APH products and textbooks can also be located using Louis. New extended searching now available with free Louis Plus. Visit soon. HTTP colon slash slash L-O-U-I-S dot A-P-H dot org. Many book materials help Braille users jot notes quickly. Pull APH's mini book Braille binder out of your pocket and begin to write on the mini book slate in just seconds. Materials are sold separately so that you can choose the combination that's right for you. Call the American Printing House for the Blind, toll-free, 800-223-1839, or visit www.aph.org. Page 2. Mike Reichert is the Policy Director with the American Foundation for the Blind, and yesterday he posted a very interesting uh, email about a Supreme Court decision that we're going to tell you about here. Um, this is being recorded on uh, Thursday, February 23, and so uh, this decision has just come out this week, and we think you'll find it very interesting. Welcome, Mark. Hi there. Mark, this is this decision um, is one that is very much of interest to people who have disabilities, and especially those that use service dogs and guide dogs. And um, it, it was a unanimous decision. So um, fill us in on what's been going on. Sure. So uh, we were very pleased yesterday to see the Supreme Court issue a very rare 
unanimous decision. Honestly, I'm I'm blanking on when the last time it was we've seen a unanimous decision uh, come out of this often very contentious and divided Supreme Court, as we all know. Um, and this case, Fry versus Napoleon Community Schools, um, you know, it, it, there there are sort of some technical aspects of it, but I think the bottom line is that if a kiddo who has a disability and is using a service animal of some variety uh, in the schools is denied access to the school because they use that service animal, um, the schools can't get away with trying to force the parents to go through an arduous, often uh, long and complicated administrative process. Uh, they cannot be forced to, quote-unquote, exhaust administrative remedies. Um, and what that basically means is that under our special education law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, there's an expectation that parents and schools, you know, work together to resolve issues before uh, and try to try to you know try to resolve and try to work things out before they just jump right to court. Uh, there are, of course, other laws that apply to people with disabilities, like the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, and these are these two laws are you know, straight-up disability civil rights laws, and under those laws, you don't have to go through an arduous, sometimes long and protracted administrative process to resolve things. You can take your claim of disability discrimination uh, to court, and of course, there are other remedies as well available under those laws. But so the, the, the sort of bottom line for all of us, I think, is that if you've got a child who is receiving special education from a school and they're also a service animal user, uh, that, that kiddo is protected under a bunch of different laws, and particularly when it comes to just straight-up disability discrimination, like not letting you use your service animal in school, uh, you don't have to go through all of the hoops that the IDEA requires you to do. You can uh, more aggressively enforce your civil rights. So this would apply for students of all ages, from elementary, kindergarten, up through high school? Oh, yeah. It, would, it also cover, um, would it also cover post-secondary programs and things like, uh, let's say, maybe rehab training programs and things like that? Well, uh, it'll be interesting to see what other creative application there will be for this case. But because this case was about the interplay, if you will, of our special education law, IDEA, mm -hmm. with the other disability civil rights laws. It really is very much a K through 12 and not uh, so much a post-secondary uh, mm -hmm. issue. But I, I should think that'd be a big step uh, in the, in the, um, in the uh, opening doors for uh, other questions that relate to the use of service dogs and service and guide dogs in, well, and in, in fact, other schools and other not situations. only that, but it, it also opens up a whole world of issues around accommodations generally, because mm -hmm. you can imagine, you know, uh, using a service animal ultimately is, you know, uh, schools ordinarily don't let dogs roam around uh, the school property, but in the case of kiddos with disabilities or indeed the teachers who have disabilities, uh, dogs are most assuredly permitted if they are service animals and uh, and so the question becomes you know uh, how how the, what are the implications for a decision like this on other types of accommodations uh, that are made or need to be made for kids with disabilities for example uh, a child uh, 
low vision who wants to uh, sit closer to the computer screen or to you know some kind of a to, to the front of a class or you know that's a pretty mild example. But there would you know be any number of other accommodations, uh, access to materials in accessible format, for example, uh, whether it be braille or electronic. Uh, those kinds of issues, those are really, those are accommodations. Those are things that are expected of schools, uh, you know, so that they can do the right thing by people with disabilities, in particular the kids that they are supposed to teach and be looking out for. Uh, and what this case would seem to suggest is that, you know, if you are wanting one of those or need one of those accommodations, like more accessible materials or perhaps even the use of specific pieces of technology as accommodations to be able to specifically uh, access uh, the services and, and, and of the school, that you don't have to go through all of those administrative hoops first before you go to court. So this will get a little technical, but I think it's important. Under IDEA, under our special education law, the real core right to be protected there is a free and appropriate public education, which is to say every student with a disability in this country is entitled to that, is entitled to a free and appropriate public education, or FAPE. And that's about providing special education and related services, specific instructional uh, interventions for a kiddo so that that kid can prog uh, participate in and progress in the general school curriculum. In the case of a kid who uses a service animal, I mean, obviously, the use of the service animal allows that kid to participate in progress in the curriculum, but it's, it's not an instructional uh, intervention. It's, it's simply an accommodation that's provided to that child. So the distinction that the court was trying to make in this Fry case is that, you know, if we're talking about accommodations, the schools cannot sort of hide behind the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act's requirement that, you know, let's work through all of this administratively before you go to court. No, the, the students with disabilities, like any other person with a disability in this country, have ADA and 504 protections, uh, and you can enforce those directly uh, by going to court, and you don't have to uh, face all those administrative delays. You know, Mark, this could be really big because... Uh, in the past, you know, with all of the IEPs and all of the meetings and sometimes on and on and on, just to get the child the, uh, the accommodations they need, the instructional materials and formats they need, um, maybe the, um, you know, the, 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 you know, maybe a change in teaching methods. I can see that some of those things would definitely belong in the IEP process and that um, complaint process and whatever. But if 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 this were to be um, to be interpreted to cover the physical accommodations related to that school and, and that student in the classroom, that could be a huge thing. It, should, it could sure speed the process up. I, I, at least it certainly gives parents more leverage. I mean, yes. You know, from a, obviously from a real-world perspective, mm -hmm. you know, if you say, well, gee, uh, you don't have to go through IDEA's administrative process, but you can go directly to court, some people would say, well, thank you for that. Uh, i got to find an attorney, i got to pay for an attorney or, you know, there's right. money involved. Exactly. Or, 
you know, all those kinds of, so as a practical matter, I mean, going to court doesn't mean that things are going to get resolved next week. No. But what it does do is it, it definitely is something that parents can say when they're defending their kiddos' right to stuff that they need, whether if it's instructional services like teaching the child to read Braille, clearly that's an expectation of IDEA. Yes. And that, you know, you're expected to, because that's instructional in nature. But if you say, my child needs, but, you know, you've, you've got a policy in place that means that, you know, certain kids have to be in this area of the school and other kids have to be in that area of school that doesn't work for my kiddo. Or, you know, you can imagine any number of situations where straight-up accommodations are required, and you can say to the school, look, you know, quit arguing with me here. Uh, this is what's required by the law, and, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you're not going to do what I want you to do, you know, we'll see you in court. And I think that that might help give us a little bit more leverage in some areas. Yes, and just 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 get the attention of people a little more because sometimes um, it with all the meetings and all the paperwork and all the ways that there can be some foot dragging around, um, you know, the ki- the kids are, are out of school sometimes before people can make a decision. So um, well, that's right. And one other thing that the court made pretty clear is that, you know, they're they're going to find a way. If, if you want to find out how you can spot whether a particular claim or issue is more of an IDEA and therefore administrative, you know, first mm-hmm. process, mm-hmm. or an ADA 504 claim where you can go directly to court. The court said, um, look at one of two things. Uh, if the thing that you're concerned about uh, would apply to this student in the situation, even if it was, you know, the, the context was not a, a public school, but some other public facility, right? In other words, mm-hmm. the child shows up for a public, uh, a public meeting, you know, a community meeting. They're having a meeting about public transportation, and the kid shows up with her service animal and wants to testify, and they say, no, we, we, don't, we don't allow dogs here. If, you know, if, that, if, if, if the same thing, the, the discrimination that's happening in a given instance could happen in a context other than a school, and it would be uh, covered by 504 or ADA, then obviously you can use the 504 and ADA in the school context. In the school. The other thing that is, if, a, if an adult uh, faced the kind of discrimination in question in the public school uh, and could sue under section uh, under section 504 in the ADA. That's also another indication that you don't need to exhaust IDEA's administrative process that you can go directly to court. In other words, let's say it wasn't a student in this case, but a teacher who was working at the school and wanted to bring her service animal with her uh, to, to class, and the, then the school said, no, we don't allow dogs here. Clearly, that's an ADA 504 uh, issue as well. So th- that's another way to sort of, you know, filter whether a particular issue uh, uh, or, you know, question of, of, of discrimination, whether it has to do with IDEA or whether the ADA and 504 apply. Okay, so how does this then, or does this, make any uh, difference, have an impact on the legislative issue that the American Foundation for the Blind is working on right now, and um, that would be the Ann Sullivan Macy Act, uh, Alice Cogswell Ann Sullivan Macy Act. And um, 
AFB has a, um, a, a day on Capitol Hill, actually on March 1, the day after ACB is going to be there talking about some other issues. And we're kind of um, hoping to be supportive of that. We definitely are hoping to be supportive of that um, of that AFB initiative there on, on March 1st. How, does this impact that effort? And, and, and explain to us a little bit, refresh us on Cogswell Macy, and then tell us Tell us if this has an impact on that as well. Okay. Well, so the Cogswell-Macy bill, Alice Cogswell and Ann Sullivan Macy uh, were two iconic figures, of course, in deafness and blindness education, Alice being the first deaf girl to be formally educated in the U.S., and then, of course, Annie Sullivan being Helen Keller's teacher. Uh, the the, the Cogswell-Macy bill is really about in, you know, taking a comprehensive look at what things need to be improved in America's special education system to ensure that students with those sensory disabilities can fully uh, can receive an, uh, you know, truly receive an education that is appropriate to their unique learning needs. And so the Cogswell-Macy bill goes on at some length about, you know, under IDEA, we need to make sure that all of our students, including those students who have additional disabilities, are properly identified for their blindness, deafness, or deafblindness needs, and that those, you know, sensory-specific needs are addressed, because that's not happening today. If you're a blind-only kiddo, uh, you yourself struggle to get the services that are specific to blindness and vision impairment, but those challenges are compounded when you have additional disabilities, and, you know, frankly, people might suggest, oh, blindness is the least of this kid's problems, right? There are <laughs> yeah. issues going on that he's got a pretty significant intellectual disabilities or whatever. Uh, it, when they are so dismissive like that, uh, it means that the blindness-specific needs aren't taught uh, and aren't addressed, and so we need to make sure that all kids are properly identified and then evaluated for their various needs uh, and the, their levels of proficiency with those various blindness-specific skills. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that the Cosmo-Macy bill does is say you can have all the laws in the world that spell out uh, all those specific uh, sensory disability needs. But if you don't have accountability uh, for those services, if people are not, if schools and states are not held accountable for making it happen, uh, and if schools and states, frankly, aren't, you know, waiting for a child wh who's blind or visually impaired to show up in their school district, but, uh, you, you know, should, in fact, be doing affirmatively, you know, being prepared for when that eventuality happens, uh, then you've got a problem. And so one of the things that Cogswell-Macy calls for is for states to engage in strategic planning around how they intend to meet the needs of kids who are blind, visually impaired, deaf, hard of hearing, or deaf-blind, and to really commit those strategies uh, to writing. And one of the things that we specifically say in the Cogswell-Macy bill is that, you know, there are students who receive uh, who should be receiving special education and related services under IDEA, but who are only, only being served under so-called Section 504 plans. In other yes. words, they just sort of say, well, this child's not a special ed kid. We just need to uh, let them sit closer to the front of the class, and, you know, we'll throw some technology at them. Uh, a, a, an, an easy uh, example of this in the deafness and hard of hearing world that might spell this out a little bit more clearly for people would be, you know, sometimes people say, well, 
all this deaf child needs is an interpreter, and we'll just make sure that an interpreter shows up. Neglecting the fact that most folk, most kids who are deaf or hard of hearing are born into families where there are no other deaf people there, and the child needs to be instructed mm-hmm. in uh, American <laughs> Sign Language. And yes. so the instruction in American Sign Language, that is what would be provided under IDEA, and the interpreter who shows up you know, regularly to interpret in the class or some other kind of accommodation that's provided, those are ADA and 504 required. So I think you know, what, what this Fry case does is say, when you've got an interplay between uh, the special ed law and the other disagree, uh, disability discrimination civil rights laws, there are different ways for how you enforce them. And when it comes to IDEA and instructional services, you know, there needs to be much more of a collaborative sort of process. And we really want to encourage parents and schools to work together before you go to court, as opposed to straight up disability discrimination where you know, there's just no tolerance for that. We shouldn't, and that makes some sense when you think about it. I mean, I've been kind of knocking uh, the administrative processes under IDEA, you know, by saying, oh, well, you know, they take a long time and, and all of that. But the reality of it is, you know, from a more positive point of view, it's, it is important to encourage collaboration between parents and teachers and school administrators, et cetera, on the often very complicated questions of what kinds of instructional interventions uh, does a particular student with disabilities need. And so it's important to prioritize in that instance, you know, really sitting down and collaborating. There really shouldn't be any question in the 21st century about whether a kid should be able to bring his or her service animal to school. And uh, we've, we've made that pretty clear through the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504, literally for for generations now. And so you can see the rationale for why we say, well, under those circumstances, let's let people go right to court. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, this is all very interesting. It'll be very, very interesting to watch and see how this all plays out, especially in uh, other areas as it kind of ripples through. A lot of times court cases kind of have a ripple effect and, and, um, and, and, bring about some change in areas that you wouldn't just expect strictly from the court case. So this, this will be very interesting to see how, how this um, affects not only K-12, but if this has any uh, ramifications in the future for post-secondary issues as well, although it does not specifically now, uh, you know, maybe it, maybe it will become the basis for um, some you know, some decisions in the future. So I, I think... And certainly, if not for yeah. post-secondary, certainly for issues having to do with accommodations well beyond yes. those service animals. Absolutely, sure. absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Mark. We appreciate you visiting with us today and look forward to seeing you at the um, ACB Legislative Seminar. Well, thank you very much. It's always nice to be asked to be on your show. Page four. We recently received a flyer consisting of a number of technology books now available from National Braille Press. These books are available in Braille and several electronic formats. We thought you might be interested in them. We've purchased several for the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind to use as references in our tech programs and we find them to be handy and have a lot of information packed into small one-volume reference material.
The first books are Apple iOS guides. Getting started with the iPhone and iOS 10, step-by-step -step instructions for blind users, $24 by Anna Dressner. This book will be available in March of 2017. iOS 10 without the I is $19.95. It's by Jonathan Mosen and it's for the seasoned, more advanced iPhone user. iOS 10 reference card is $8 by Anna Dressner for voiceover, Bluetooth keyboard, and braille displays. The Mac Sierra Operating System, a brief overview of what's new, is a book by Janet Ingber, and it's $12. Mac Reference Card is $8, also by Janet Ingber. The Abundant Bookshelf, reading books on an iPhone, iPad, or iPod Touch, $12 by Judy Dixon. Anyone Can Play, accessible games for the iPhone, iPad and iPod Touch, $12, edited by Judy Dixon. Out and About, our favorite iOS travel apps, $9 by Judy Dixon and Doug Wakefield. Other technology guides include Computers You Can Talk To, Siri, Alexa, Google Now, and Cortana, $12 by Anna Dressner. Getting Started with Android, $20 by Anna Garza and J.J. Medall. Windows 10 Keystroke Compendium, $8 by Dean Martineau. All of these books are soft covers, and some, like the Keystroke Guides and Reference Guides, are the little half-size books that are right handy for just taking along in a backpack and having at your fingertips. For more information about any of these books, contact National Braille Press at www.nbp.org or give them a phone call at 800-548-7323, extension 520. Page 5. The Sound Prince Calendar. March 2, the American Council of Blind Lions will hold its monthly conference call at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. The call-in number is 712-432-3900 and the code is 796096. Blind and visually impaired lions across the country are urged to attend this meeting. On Friday, March 3rd, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind invites you to our roundabout. We'll have Braille, tech support, genealogy, and cooking at 3.30, discussion time from 5 to 6, Dinner at 6 o'clock, $5 per person, and games and crafts from 7 to 10 at United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville. Call 895-4598 to sign up. On March 5, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind committees will meet beginning at 7 p.m. with advocacy, 8 p.m. education and technology, and 9 p.m. activities. Call 605-475-6006 and enter code 294444 to participate in any of these meetings. On March 7, the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision will have its March conference call at 8 p.m. 
on the conference line at 605-475-6006, code 294444. This month's program will be an opportunity for all call participants to introduce themselves and share their experiences with low vision. On March 9, KCCLV will have its in-person support group meeting from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. at United Crescent Hill Ministries in Louisville. A special program will be announced on next week's sound prints. Call 895-4598 for more information. On March 9, the Northern Kentucky Council of the Blind will have its monthly meeting at 7 p.m. by conference call. The phone number is 605-475-4700 and the code is 155-619. On Friday, March 10, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind invites you to Roundabout and Bingo, Braille, Tech Support, and Genealogy at 3.30, the Air Fryer versus the New Wave Oven, Hands-On Demos from 5 to 6, Dinner, 6 to 7, $5 per person, and Bingo, $2, Cards and Crafts from 7 until 10. All at United Crescent Hill Ministries. Call 895-4598 to sign up. On March 11, the Greater Louisville Council of the Blind Board will meet at 11 a.m. on the conference line at 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. On March 12, the KCB Next Generation will hold its conference call meeting at 8 p.m. on the same conference line. Also on March 12, ACB Families will have a business meeting at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on the line at 712-432-3900, enter code 796096. This is a call that is open to anyone interested in ACB families throughout the country, so feel free to call and get involved. On March 14, the Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired, SAVVY, will have its meeting from 1 to 3 p.m. Central Time at the Wing Avenue Baptist Church, 628 Wing Avenue in Owensboro. Call Rick Bogus at 270-684-4418 or Bill Roberts at 270-485-8170 for more information. On March 17, the GLCB Roundabout will have Braille, Technology, and Genealogy at 3.30, discussion time at 5, dinner at 6, and then we'll be attending the Reader's Theater at the American Printing House for the Blind at 7 p.m. Call 502-895-4598 for more details. On Friday, March 17, and Saturday, March 18, the Braille Readers Theater will take place at the American Printing House for the Blind. The APH Museum Readers Theater Troupe presents a trio of one-act plays by contemporary playwright David Ives. No props, no lights, no costumes, but all fun. Our actors read the scripts in Braille. It's at the American Printing House for the Blind, 1839 Frankfurt Avenue in Louisville. It is free, but registration is required as space is limited. Best for older children and adults. Call 502-899-2213 for more information and to sign up. On March 19, the Kentucky School for the Blind Alumni Association will hold its board meeting at 8 p.m. 
on the conference line. And on March 20, the Kentucky Council of the Blind will hold its board meeting at 7.30 p.m., also on the conference line at 605-475-6006, code 294444. March 22, the Bluegrass Council of the Blind Peer Support Group will meet from noon to 2 p.m. at the BCB office, 1093 South Broadway in Lexington. RSVP or information, call 859-259-1834. On March 24, another GLCB roundabout will take place at United Crescent Hill Ministries, Braille, Tech Support, Genealogy, and Cooking from 3.30 to 5, discussion time from 5 to 6, dinner 6 to 7, $5 per person, games and crafts from 7 to 10. At United Crescent Hill Ministries, call 502-895-4598 for information. On March 27, Guide Dog Users of Kentuckiana will have a membership call at 7 p.m. On the line at 605-475-6006, enter code 294444. And on March 31, the last GLCB roundabout of the month will take place, Braille, Tech Support, Genealogy and Cooking at 330 Discussion time at 5, dinner at 6, games and crafts at 7. Call 895-4598 for details. Looking ahead to some special events already on the schedule, on Saturday, March 27, join KCB Next Generation for a lunch cruise on the Belle of Louisville. And on Saturday, June 11, plan to attend Next Generation's Council-wide picnic scheduled for the Brown Park in Louisville. On June 30 through July 7 is the 56th Conference and Convention of the American Council of the Blind. It's in Reno, Nevada at the Nugget Hotel and Resort. Visit the ACB website at www.acb.org or call the KCB office at 502-895-4598 or the ACB National Office at 800-424-8666 for more information. On August 4 and 5, the Kentucky School for the Blind Alumni Association will hold its conference and reunion at the Ramada Inn North on Zorn Avenue in Louisville. Plan now to attend. More details coming soon. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. Sound Prince is a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind and is heard each week on ACB Radio Mainstream at acbradio.org, Central Kentucky Radio I at radioi.org, and the KCB website at www.kentucky-acb.org. Complete schedule information is also available on the website. Sound Prince is underwritten by the Louisville Downtown Lions Club, and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Rushable for Sound Prints. Have a great week, everybody.